Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org, and you can follow the SLSA on Twitter at Southern Labor SA. I hope you enjoy the following interview. Welcome to Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Jessica Wilkerson, Assistant Professor of History and Southern Studies at the University of Mississippi. Today we're discussing her book, To Live Here, You Have to Fight, How Women Led Appalachian Movements for Social Justice, published by the University of Illinois Press. Jessie Wilkerson, welcome to Working History. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. How did you come to write about how women and social justice movements in Appalachia intersect? And why the title to your book, To Live Here, You Have to Fight? Yeah, so I grew up in East Tennessee. And as a college student, I had this growing interest in women's history and Appalachian history. And so that was sort of budding when I was in college, I went to Carson Newman College in East Tennessee. Um, And when I got to graduate school, I started visiting archives all around the region and reading all that I could about the 60s and 70s. And I was really drawn to the movements of that period and in particular how they played out in Appalachia. I had seen films like Harlan County, USA that Barbara Koppel directed. I also saw You Got to Move um, directed by Lucy Massey Phoenix, like very early, like when I was a freshman in college. Mm -hmm. So I had these... I had this interest just in that period, but also like in Appalachia and in women. Um, And so I, you know, as I said, I started doing this archival research just all over the place. And then at the same time, I started doing interviews, oral history interviews with women around East Tennessee and in Eastern Kentucky for the Southern Oral History Program's project on the women's movement. And I kept hearing people talk about women activists in Eastern Kentucky and how they were kind of an inspiration and they were the heroines to these feminists in East Tennessee. And so, you know, I just became really curious about them. And that's really where the, my focus ended up being on these activists in Eastern Kentucky who had gotten involved in the war on poverty, but then did all kinds of other things in the sixties and seventies. The title really draws upon two quotations So the first is um, the famous statement by uh, labor activist Mother Jones. Uh, In the early 20th century, she went to West Virginia and she was organizing coal miners. And she declared, pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. Mm -hmm. And that statement was, you know, it's earlier than the time period I write about, but the women that I'm writing about often cited it or they would say it. And they also had pictures of Mother Jones and they put this, they, you know, they, they um, cut out that statement and put it in scrapbooks. And so it really resonated for them and they considered her a hero. And then the second quotation 
comes from anti-strip mine activist Bessie Smith Gayhart. So she was an anti-poverty activist and then really became a pretty fierce activist against this practice of surface mining. And in 1975, she was at an International Women's Year meeting in Wheelwright, Kentucky. And she said to the audience, to stay here, you're going to have to fight like hell. And so those two, so I, I was really... Um, you're basing the title on those two ideas or those two statements of, of what it means to fight for social justice and also just this long struggle in Appalachia. Mm -hmm. Before we launch into um, some conversation about the details that, that are in your book, um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the, the fact that there's really seemingly been an uptick in attention to Appalachia and about, you know, in books written about the region. And especially with the publication of Hillbilly Elegy, um, we began to see a lot of a lot of sort of media attention to to works being written on this and then to responses to that book, including the new anthology, Appalachian Reckoning and what you're getting wrong in Appalachian. And I'm wondering where you see your book fitting into this broader conversation and contributing to to an understanding um, of the region. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, this has been such a fascinating moment to publish my book, because as you know, and as your listeners will know, I've been working on this for a really long time mm -hmm. and, and never really imagined it would come out at a moment where people were suddenly talking about Appalachia a lot. And you know, I was putting the final touches on the book right as Hillbilly Elegy was hitting the bestseller list mm -hmm. and, you know, eventually internationally. And, you know, and, and at the same time, there was this media coverage of Appalachia before the 2016 election and afterwards that paints it as kind of a Trump land. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I don't want to necessarily rehash points that others have made really well, like, you know, Elizabeth Cat, I think her, she does this as a superb de deconstruction um, of the ideas in Hillbilly Elegy. And then, as you mentioned, there's this new wonderful edited volume, um, Appalachian Reckoning. So I, you know, I would point people in that direction. But you know, for me, in particular, um, one thing that's been really striking is how reviewers and and readers, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who who were really drawn to to JD Vance's book, and and they often mention his grandmother, mm -hmm. and you know she's depicted as this kind of pistol toting wild woman mountaineer, um, who also is very sensitive to her grandson, and she provides shelter and support uh, for him, and and is one of the reasons that he's able to be so successful, and so. That's been really interesting to me. And you, we get kind of sometimes glimpses of how she's a complex person, but people really are drawn to like the simplistic caricature of this mountain woman. Mm -hmm. And we don't get a sense of of the changes that she experienced or witnessed. We don't really get a sense of her interiority. And and so, you know, as a women's historian, a women's labor historian, that really bothers me. And and so, you know, I definitely see my book correcting some of these these caricatures of Appalachian women. Um, and then there's the mother character, J.D. Vance's mother. And she, for folks who haven't read the book, um, she becomes an addict and she's dependent on others and she's dependent on the, the state. I, I think I'm remembering correctly that she ends up on disability. But regardless, I mean, her story 
fits into what I would call a dependency narrative of mm-hmm. Appalachia. Mm-hmm. So this idea that the region is just totally awash in people and white people in particular who are poor and at one point in history, they were committed to hard work, but now they're dependent on the welfare state. And that, um, you know, Vance's narrative and then other media narratives really played into the stereotype of Appalachia as a drain on the rest of the country. And so my book really pushes against that that narrative, which is also totally ahistorical. Uh, so, you know, I construct a narrative that really centers the lives and experiences of poor and working class white women, also occasionally um, black women in Appalachia. And I try to make sense of the choices that they made and how they navigated the coal fields of Appalachia. Um, and I also want to show how they were part of major social movements of the 20th century. So these were not passive or uncomplicated people. And so whether it's a positive or a negative stereotype of women, you know, I'm really um, trying to offer uh, push back against that and offer some complexity and show how rich these women's lives were and and also show their political struggles, right? Like the choices that they had to made, make and how they entered into these really um, major debates of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us a little bit more into the the substance of your book and maybe start by just talking briefly in broad brushstrokes, walk us through the history of the political economy of Appalachia. What was the economy like in the early to mid 20th century? And then move us forward more into the period of the 60s and 70s, which you which you focus on. Yes. So, you know, I will try to do this quickly. (laughs) We could spend a lot of time on this, but um, to put it it briefly, so um, first of all, Appalachia of the 19th century is is pretty um, agricultural, right? And it's it's late 19th century that the railroads um, you know, begin to lay tracks in Appalachia. And that really opens the way for extractive industry. So we see these transformations in the political economy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Also, to be clear, I'm talking about central Appalachia. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. eastern Kentucky, parts of East Tennessee, Southwest Virginia and West Virginia. You know, Appalachia is a much larger region than mm-hmm. that, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm talking about the coal fields of that area. Um, so in the early 20th century, corporations bought up vast quantities of land. They bought up mineral rights. And, you know, we see the consequences of that into the present day. Um, and and you know, as mining companies set up, um, in the region, they build these coal camps and they start recruiting workers into the coal camps or coal towns. And the mining companies control everything. So they build the homes, they rent the homes out to the workers, um, they own and operate the commissaries, um, which are the, you know, the, the local general stores, uh, they open schools, they control the police forces. I mean, it is really like total control. Mm-hmm. by by these industries. And then they also have allies in local white elites at the local and state level. And so at that point, the region is really defined by a single industry economy, and it really begins to shift away from an agricultural economy. And, and I show how some women navigate that. Right? Mm-hmm. Early 20th century, some women maintain a farm while their husbands go into the mines. And they're a bit more stable than people who just go into the mines. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
And so, and I also, um, yeah, I think it's important to, to think about how women's labor transforms as the economy shifts, right? Cause their labor changes as well. Mm-hmm. So the dominance of coal mining really alters their lives. And especially as, uh, disasters start to occur, you know, coal mines begin exploding. Of course, people know this is an incredibly dangerous uh, industry. Rates of disability begin to climb. And so that really changes women's lives because they're the ones ultimately who are taking care of disabled husbands, fathers, and sons. So you know, I think it's important to think about the the political economy and how it changes, but also how it affects women mm-hmm. and their labor. Mm-hmm. So through the through the 20th century, like you know, Great Depression, of course, hits Appalachia very hard, and mining families face unemployment and hunger, and um, they're also organizing unions, and they have, they face extreme violence and backlash from coal operators, and just I I would say like everything is compounded in the coal fields because it is a single industry economy, so everything mm-hmm. is really mm-hmm. stark there. Um, so in some, when we talk about that earlier period, you know, first half of 20th century, yeah, I'd say um, you know, the major major issues have to do with a lack of democracy and a lack of workers' rights and, and how workers are navigating that terrain. Mm-hmm. By the 60s and 70s, we see another transformation, and that is brought about by mechanization of the mines as well as surface mining. So hand loading, what we typically think of as a coal mining job, that becomes, you know, those jobs are fewer and fewer. And so it takes takes fewer workers to do the same amount of work. And, and so that's, you know, there's this crisis, um, jobs crisis. And then at the same time, the United Mine Workers of America which was, you know, the major union in the region begins to face some problems as well. And and they see their membership decline uh, in the 1950s and 60s. And then there's a crisis in the health and retirement fund, mm-hmm. um, which, which hits minors particularly hard. Um, and, and so you have these, these problems, you know, with the union and then also with unemployment on the rise. And, and then on top of all of that, you have, again, the single industry economy. And so the historian Ron Eller, who's written wonderfully about um, Appalachia after 1945, he describes the region as having growth without development. Mm -hmm. So there'd been all of this expansion around the coal industry and, and industry in general, extractive industry in general, so building highways and things like that. But there hadn't been economic growth that really helped working people. And so when coal declined, there's little else available. And so at that moment, you know, in the 1960s, with all of these compounding crises, including, you know, like there's some major floods at that in the early 60s, plus unemployment, um, the federal government starts to take notice. And that's when we see first President Kennedy and then Johnson target the region for economic development. And then, of course, under Johnson, um, we see the rise of the war on poverty targeting Appalachia. 
In your book, you use the term Appalachian feminism to describe a particular type of feminism among women in this region. And in this context that you were just discussing in terms of the, the political economy and, and shifts in, in the region in, in that regard, where did you see the roots of this feminism coming from? And then how was this feminism shaped by women's day-to-day experiences and their class consciousness? Mm-hmm. I should say that when I started this project, I really did not expect to talk too much about feminism. Like, I knew I was writing about women's activism, but I wasn't sure it was framed as feminism. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I found that, in fact, there were lots of women talking about feminism or, you know, um, talking about their own activism in relation to the women's movement. And and so, you know, I came to see um, their activism is very much rooted in debates about gender justice. Mm-hmm. And I argue that the roots of their feminism lay in their experiences of caregiving in the region. And that as I've said, their caregiving was made particularly difficult in this landscape of the coal fields where mine disasters, floods, you know, environmental justice, disability, all these things were, were very common. And so that's really when they explain their feminism, it's often in that context of taking care of and providing for family. Mm-hmm. And so that's very different than, say, liberal feminism, which so often is um, defined by access to certain careers that you know, professional careers, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. career development and in that kind of discrimination or access to college. Um, and so this this looks and sounds a bit different because it's about the resources women need to take care of their families. And so in that sense, they sound more like black welfare rights activists who are also becoming active in the 1960s around similar kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. And and I should say in Appalachia, you know, I, I write mostly about white working class women, but there were several prominent black welfare rights activists in Appalachia as well. And so, you know, I write about those interracial coalitions. And so that's really, so these, these, um, Concerns over caregiving really motivated their feminism. And then, of course, it's also rooted in labor struggles and in working class solidarity. So what I found is that the women, the women activists I write about had little interest in calls for women's rights that did not address how capitalism oppressed working class women and men mm-hmm. in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Right. So they would say for instance, in a, there was an international women's rights meeting in 1975, and and women were saying, you know, we we want access to jobs, but our our male partners also need access to jobs, right? It can't be just them suddenly mm-hmm. getting mm-hmm. access, and so they were dealing with economic crisis that was affecting all workers. So any call, to, you know, to, um, for like climbing corporate ladders, you know, or things like that just did not resonate with working class women in coal towns. Like it didn't reflect their experience. The, I trace, you know, sometimes they call themselves feminists, but other times they're they're engaging those debates without using that term. But I still think it's really important to kind of pinpoint those moments where they're making sense of gender justice rooted in their own experience. Mm-hmm. Just a, a little bit of a tangent. Um, I'm interested in how women did or didn't interact with with unions 
because, you know, mine workers are predominantly male, right? Uh And although union culture is very strong, right, in in Coalfield. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know sort of how women interacted with, for instance, United Mine Workers, and how the union interacted with them. I mean, was it more of a a secondary? Was it mediators of caretaking for things like Black Lung? You know, how did that relationship work? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it changes over time. So I write uh, in the early in the book, I write about the 1930s labor struggles in Harlan County and throughout eastern Kentucky. And there were certainly women who were involved in union organizing at that time. Um, most notably, you know, Florence Reese writes, which side are you on? Mm-hmm. Um, Aunt Molly Jackson, another folk singer, becomes an organizer for the National Miners Union. And so so they're involved, but I would say it was a little more muted in mm-hmm. the 30s. And I mean that in the sense that it was these individual women and and it wasn't necessarily a, you know groups of women identifying um, you know as coal miners' wives or you know, women in the region organizing together for for the union. And so it was support it was more of a supporting role. Mm-hmm. That changes. In the 1970s, I argue, with the Brookside Mine Strike and other strikes in that time. And at that point, um, your listeners may have seen Harlan County, USA, and and there's this organization called the Brookside Women's Club. And it's formed by women, not necessarily women who were married to men in the Brookside Mine in Harlan County, but it was women who supported unions. I think the movie doesn't necessarily tell you that. And if you're watching it, you might just, I think they've been identified as coal miners' wives. Mm, mm-hmm. But some of them, actually many of them, didn't have husbands in that mine or male family members. They joined the club because they believed in unions. And so I think that is really significant. And so at that point, uh, the UMWA local in Brookside and Harlan County, Kentucky, you know, they are really happy that the women show up and organize because they're facing injunctions by the court. So they can't show up. They can only have like three men on the picket lines. And so, um, and I think when the judge wrote the injunction, he said men. And so the women oh, okay. went around that and they said, well, we can show up. Sure. And and so they, um, you know, the UMWA at that point is you know, really happy to see them. And they also start organizing together. So women are at those union meetings making decisions with the men. And another, um, I think, just interesting point about this is the w- women were, um, they showed the film Salt of the Earth, mm-hmm. which is about um, miners in, is it New Mexico? Am I remembering that? But uh, in the Southwest, uh, who organize um, you know, Mexican and Mexican-American miners and their wives show up and and kind of um, they want a place in the union as well. And so the women in Brookside are watching that film and they're identifying with women in that film. And they see a place for women in the union battle and they're making claims, right? They're saying that a unionized mine benefits individual workers, but it also benefits the entire working class community. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, the UMWA is, is they in the UMWA journal, they're celebrating the women's activism. They're writing up profiles of them with portraits of the women. So they're really invested in the women participating. And then, of course, 
in the late seventies, women gain access to mining jobs Mm -hmm. with of course, new laws addressing employment discrimination. And so Um, women mount these campaigns, including some of the women who had been involved in the Brookside strike. They start these campaigns to get jobs in the mines, and they are immediately, many of them become union members, and they have very few numbers in the mines, but they have this big impact in the union. And I write about how they push for a family leave policy Mm -hmm. in the UMWA. And and are very um, many of them start addressing occupational safety and health issues in the mines, and they become leaders on that front. So you know, I think you know by the seventies, um, there is a place for women, you know, a, a position of leadership often for women in the UMWA. So picking up on that a bit more, um, in in your book, you discuss three broad areas in which women are engaging in in their social justice activism, um, healthcare, anti-poverty initiatives, and then also labor rights. And so I'm wondering if you could, um, in addition to what you just talked about in terms of their involvement with the United Mine Workers, if you could give our listeners a couple additional specific examples of how women were active in these areas and what their engagement was and what their objectives, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. As well. Yeah, so you know, I've talked more about the 1970s and and this big labor campaign through the UMWA, and I, I'll take it back a little bit to the mm-hmm. 1960s and the war on poverty, because I, you know, for my book, the war on poverty was this really significant moment, especially for women who often had the most to gain from federal resources. Mm -hmm. And that came in the form of paid work. And, you know, they also received, their communities would receive grants where they could address the most pressing needs in their communities. And so I write about how women use those resources to, to really form what I would call a grassroots war on poverty. So they're getting federal resources as part of the federal war on poverty, but then what they do with it is more of a grassroots movement. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, one example is um, Frances Granny Hager, who was a lifelong activist. She stood on picket lines in the 1930s, you know, joined um, minor struggles, and then she did again in the 60s and 70s. But her particular interest was in black lung benefits. Her husband had died of black lung disease. You know, she had sat by his side. She had witnessed you know, the moment he was turned away from a hospital when he was sick and dying because he couldn't pay a $50 deposit. Mm-hmm. And and so by the mid-1960s, just a few years after his death, um, activists who were part of the war on poverty began to call for black lung benefits. And in general, they were trying to get the coal industry and the federal government to um, acknowledge that black lung disease existed and that they should be held accountable for this tragic disease. And so Hager was a part of this movement of organizing widows and disabled minors and and pushing the federal government to pass federal legislation, black lung legislation. And ultimately they did as part of the uh, Mine Health and Safety Act of 1969. And, and then at that point, Granny Hager, you know, she at this point, she's a elderly woman. She goes around communities and she knocks on doors and asks people if they know about black lung benefits. She helps people sign up for them. And 
And so, you know, she helps to enact this legislation. Like she helps to, she's a part of a movement to get it passed and then helps inform people about it. And so that's one point I make throughout the book is that women anti-poverty workers help to push for legislation and then when it passed, help to enforce it. And, and their focus was always on working class communities, right? So helping working class communities understand and make sense of their rights and to demand you know, greater worker rights. So that's one person that I write about. Um, another is Eula Hall. And um, Eula is well, very well known now because she um, helped to start a community health clinic in Mud Creek, Kentucky, which is in Floyd County. But Eula became an activist and, and became a worker in the federal war on poverty in 1966. At the time, she was a young mother. She had four or five children. Uh, her husband was very abusive, and she had no access to work, so she would sell quilts. Um, she would also sell moonshine and, and try to make ends meet and, and navigate this really abusive relationship. So for her, the war on poverty was a way out of that um, really awful relationship. And and it was also a way for her to do something in her community. Like she talked about how even as a young girl, she wanted to make an impact in her community, but she couldn't even go to school, right? She went to school for like five years of her life. So with the war on poverty, she joins in 1966. Uh, she finds allies and young activists who were attracted to the region based on its militant labor history, um, and it was part of this wave of poor people's campaigns. And, and she, she joins up with them and becomes this very um, fierce activist. And, and so she joins welfare rights movements, becomes a really outspoken uh, welfare rights activist, both at the state and national level. Um, so she and other Appalachian activists are constantly going to Frankfort, Kentucky, demanding that they have a voice in welfare policies. They also go to D.C. in the 70s and, and fight for an expansion of welfare rights. And then um, what Eula, as I said, what she's most known for is helping to spark a community health movement in the region. Mm-hmm. And she did that with a network of progressive doctors. These were folks who were trained in the civil rights movement as part of the Medical Committee for Human Rights. They meet up with these activists from Appalachia. And they helped to open one of the first rural community health clinics. And I think this is a really important moment because it's we could just think of it as kind of isolated as as a story about healthcare, mm-hmm. but to me it really is a working class movement. Um, its mission was to serve everyone, regardless of ability to pay. And um, Eula and other activists were connected with black lung activists, disabled minors, and welfare rights activists, and much of their funding early on came from the UMWA. Mm. And so you have this network of you know, labor, anti-poverty, and community health activists who are thinking of healthcare very broadly, and they see these community health clinics as a way to build a movement. And so early on, you know, it opens in 1975, um, and the clinic in Mud Creek is a hub for welfare rights organizing. 
miners meet there, black lung activists meet there. And then in 1975, I believe, they have the first Appalachian women's rights organization at the at this clinic. And so I was just amazed by that, that these are like working class centers and people are drawn there to take care of their health needs, but they're connecting it to all of these other things. That's really interesting. You know, when you read your book, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a primer for building social justice movements, right? You know, sort of these intersectional issues and how they can all come together. Um, and on that note, um, you know, before we wrap up, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about any particular takeaways that you that you see from this research and the story that you've done about the region and the women and their activism during the 60s and 70s uh, for today. Historians are not necessarily in the business of what lessons can we learn, but what lessons can we learn from from what you're writing about? Yes. You know, that question has often made me very uncomfortable, but yeah, I'm, right. getting more, I'm getting more comfortable with it, given just the context. People are interested in Appalachia. Um, so I would say there are two major takeaways that I would want people to think about from this book. And the first is asking ourselves how we conceive of the working class in America. I mean, this is not so much a problem of labor historians, we know that the working class is diverse and, and, you know, multiracial, multiethnic, many women are workers. But there is still this really dominant image of the working class as industrial workers, always white, always male, even though that doesn't reflect the history of America in general, um, nor does it reflect the history of Appalachia. And I think if, you know, if there's any region that has like a iconic working image attached to it. It's Appalachia, mm-hmm. right? The coal coal miner represents the region. And and so it's it's just it's inaccurate. And and in Appalachia today, the most exciting movement of workers is and in, in informed by class consciousness is the one being led by teachers and public sector workers. Mm-hmm. And so I often say that um like the the sort of media narrative of Appalachia and the hillbilly elegy narrative is it it doesn't really help us explain the teacher strikes. Mm-hmm. And I think my book does help us to understand the teacher strike. It's a women led movement where workers are thinking about the common good. Right. It's not about capitalist profit. It's about it's about caregiving. It's about you know, what we envision for our communities. And so that brings me to the the second takeaway, which is, I think um, it's really important that we center caregiving labor in any debate about capitalism and democracy. And for far too long, the labor of taking care of families, raising children, tending to communities has been ignored or marginalized, even though that labor is crucial to capitalist logics, right? We can't we can't eat coal. Like we, we only, we can only sustain life um, through that caregiving labor. Mm -hmm. While my book is set in the coal fields and mining is certainly really important to the story that I tell, I do try to shift the focus to the people who are sustaining life in that environment. And I think that's just a broader lesson for how we think about these movements today and going forward. All right. Well, Jesse Wilkerson, congratulations on the book. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History. Thanks, Beth.
Thanks again to Jessie Wilkerson for joining us today to discuss her book, To Live Here, You Have to Fight. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. 